So here we are in the middle of January, starting to actually get to winter. Wondered for a while if it would come, and then it got really warm, and now we're settling in. And what that means in my book, being in mid-January, is it's an excellent time to reflect on being at the beach. Amen? So take a deep breath and imagine the warm air and the breeze coming across your face. You feel the soft sand and the water kind of lapping up in between your toes. And as you're there on the beach chair, you look down the beach and you see those little flags they put up to tell you what the waves are doing, right? The green flag means that it's not, the waves aren't bad, you can go out in the water. The, the yellow one is, is mild, be careful, but still a good day to go out there. The red flag tells you that there's a storm coming in and you probably shouldn't get out past about ankle depth in the water today. And of course, there's the purple one that freaks everybody out. So there's marine life around and it's probably just jellyfish, but everybody thinks a shark attack is coming. But we train our kids to look for these flags, right? So to look, say, okay, dad, what's, what's the waves or what are the waves going to be doing today? And, and how do we respond to those? Do you know what I've never told my kids to do about the waves and the flags? I've never once told them to look and see if the waves are coming in. But we look to see what the flag is going to tell us and how they're coming in, but we never talk about are they coming in. They're never in question. You see, the flag tells us what kind of waves to expect, but there's never a question of if the waves are coming in. They're relentless. Today we start a new series in Genesis, the third leg of this Genesis series. And as you can see, it's titled Relentless Grace. We'll see over and over in the life of Jacob over the next several months that God's grace is absolutely relentless. It's like the waves coming in. We don't know exactly how God's grace is going to come to us. Sometimes it's in ways that we want with the, the green or the yellow flag of the waves. And sometimes his grace comes to us in ways we don't want, in red flags or purple flags. But all the time, just like those waves are relentless coming onto the shore, we know God's grace is relentless in pursuing us. And the first sermon in this series today is called Generational Grace. Here's why we've titled it that, because God's grace is on display in some remarkable ways in the life of Jacob here in Genesis 25. But it's not limited to this generation or to that generation. No, it's relentless across all generations. His grace isn't limited to events a long time ago in a, in a galaxy far, far away. No, it cuts across all generations, all time periods, and into our very lives today. So the question is this. Will you see the grace of God? Will you respond to it? And Moses, the man used by God to write down the book of Genesis, sort of structures this passage so that we can see three responses to the grace of God that is, uh, are appropriate and right and how we ought to respond to it. And so those responses will sort of form our outline this morning where we're going to say we need to, one, remember God's faithful grace, and then second, recognize his sovereign grace. And third, rely on his relentless grace. So we'll say, remember God's faithful grace, recognize his sovereign grace, rely on his relentless grace. I hope you've got your copy of the scriptures open and, and you leave it open because we'll be going back to that frequently. This first point to remember God's faithful grace. Look back at verse 19 of Genesis 25. And here's what we read in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. 
Abraham fathered Isaac. I pause there. Does that not feel redundant a bit to you? These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, Abraham fathered Isaac. Yes, it is redundant, and the author is making a point that God was faithful to give this promised son to Abraham when it seemed unlikely. And this faithfulness to his generation will continue to your generation as well. We saw the faithfulness in the life of Abraham. When he was a nobody living in the middle of nowhere, God was faithful to show grace to him. And when Abraham was obedient, God continued to show grace to him. And when Abraham was disobedient, caught up in his perpetual lying habits and committing adultery, God's faithful to show grace to him. And so the original audience, remember, this, is, this book was written to the Israelites while they're in the wilderness wanderings after they've left Egypt in the Exodus. They're out there sort of wondering, yes, God, I know you were faithful back then to Abraham, but will you, will you be faithful to us now? And of course, they had reason to wonder about this faithfulness. Would it continue? They've been wondering for 40 years. They had no food for a while, and then they had nasty food for a while. They'd seen a whole generation die and be buried in the sand. They're wondering, God, are you going to really continue to show grace after everything we've seen here? Then they get to the, the edge of the promised land, and not to steal from Christian movies too much, but they were literally facing the giants at that point. So they look across the land and see who's there. God, are you going to be showing grace to us? Here's what we see in verse 21 and verse 22 of God's faithful grace to them. Look back here and here's what we read. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? See, Rebecca had been barren. She'd been fighting infertility for 20 long years. Then she gets pregnant, finally. And the hostility between her sons in the womb, before they're even born, is so intense that it drives her to it seems in the way the text reads to actually question her existence. The, the literal translation would be, if this is happening, why am I? Why am I even here? This is too hard. I can't do this. And then they're born. It's, hopefully things get better, but they actually hate each other, and they spend their lives trying to kill each other and tearing the family apart. Like if anybody knew anything about discouragement, depression, Anxiety? Sadness? Guys, it's Rebecca. This is decades of incredibly difficult living. Decade after decade after decade. And I think it's important that we notice right here in the pages of Scripture that sometimes the Old Testament doesn't feel so relatable to our life, but this is one of the most relatable passages you'll ever find in the Bible where the Bible is describing for us this full scope of human experience, especially what it's like to live in a sin-cursed world. Yeah, there's some joys there, but there's a lot of griefs. There's a lot of sorrows. There's a lot of disappointments. But it's so important that we catch this. The Bible is not merely showing us the breadth of human experience, no, it's showing us the God behind it who's faithful to continue showing grace in all circumstances. You've got to see both of those. The breadth of human experience that understands where you're at 
And there's a faithful God across generations who has been showing grace and will continue to show grace. So we come to this, and I recognize this morning, and for some of you, this passage is exactly what you may need for a trial you're in today. And for others of you, it might be preparing you for a trial 10 years from now. We couldn't even begin to guess what it is. There's others here. You've got a friend who's walking a difficult road. This passage is here to equip you to be a good friend to them, to walk in community with them. And, And there's others that it's not really about a trial for you right now or a major difficulty but the faithfulness of God to continue showing grace is here so that you can have joy in the mundane, boring, day-to-day parts of life where it's just kind of like one foot in front of the other and you see the grace of God all over your life and you have joy in it even though it seems kind of boring right now. You remember what we said at the beginning about the the beach and the flags and the, the waves coming in and all of that? When we wake up at the beach looking for the flags, it creates an expectancy in our kids. What are the waves going to be today? Is this one where we're going to go out and we're going to jump on the waves because they're kind of coming in a little better? Is it, uh, is it really calm and dad's going to go out with those little skippy balls and skip it across the, the, the water? And, or is, is that what we're doing today? Is it, gonna, is it raining today? Do we get to go shopping Like there's an expectancy to see what's going to happen. And knowing that God has been faithful to show grace across generation after generation after generation and into our lives ought to create an expectancy within us. I wake up looking to see, I know God's grace will be showing up today. Just like I know the waves are coming in today, what's it gonna look like today? God, help me to see it. And so how do we see Isaac and Rebecca remembering God's faithful grace? How do we see that? Well, look back at verse 21 again with me. The passage actually answers that question. Here's what it says. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. How do they remember? They remember by praying together. Perhaps you can see Isaac and Rebekah thinking, there's a lot about our parents we love, and we want to emulate them and walk by faith like them. But Abraham and Sarah didn't do such a good job with this waiting for the child thing. They took matters into their own hands. So we don't want to be like them, and we want to learn. And so, God, we're going to pray and say, God, we've seen you be faithful. Will you please continue to be faithful? They want to learn from their parents. They want to learn to trust God, and he acts on their behalf. You can see them sort of praying backwards and praying forwards at the same time, right? God, we've seen you do this, and we're asking you to do this. And then verse 22 tells us about the, the internal struggle during this pregnancy that caused Rebecca to question her existence. You get the end of verse 22. This is such a critical little phrase. So she went to inquire of the Lord. Really difficult road. And so what did she do? She went to inquire of the Lord. She let her pain drive her to God. I don't understand. I don't get it. This doesn't make sense. You promised a child. Why is it so terrible now? Guys, God longs for you to bring him whatever is in the depths of your heart. 
whether it feels like the Sunday school type prayer or the kind of thing that you really shouldn't even verbalize as a Christian. God wants you to bring it all to him. We see Rebecca doing this. And it's instructive for us because we remember God's grace through prayer that looks back at what he's done and looks forward to what he's going to do and prayers that are prayed together. In this case, it's Isaac and Rebecca praying together. So husbands, wives, I encourage you, work at praying together. Like if, if you've not established that rhythm, I mean, it's been years or decades, I understand it can be really hard to jump in here, but just make it part of a pre-dinner prayer. You're likely used to praying there already, and add a little bit of beef to it of say, hey, let me pray and thank God for one thing that we remember him doing in the last year. Baby steps there. And slowly you can build out. You don't, Rome wasn't built in a day. And look ahead in that prayer and ask him to do something. Maybe you're going to grab that member prayer directory. Or we've passed those out. And to be a, a member at Parkside, we say it's a commitment to love each other, a meaningful membership. And you say, man, I'm going to pray through that thing, name by name, asking that God will help that person to remember how he's shown grace and to look forward to how he's going to show grace. Maybe you're sharing a meal with somebody. Or you're, you're practicing hospitality. You're in a discipling relationship. You meet regularly to read the scriptures and talk about it. The next time you're having a meal with somebody, you know them well, or it's the first time you've ever sat down, simply say this. Hey, could you just tell me one way that you've seen God's grace in your life, where he's been faithful through the years? And if it's somebody you've known for a while, say this. Hey, what's one thing I may not know about you where God has shown his grace? And together, we build a rhythm of remembering what God has done. Maybe for you, the action step is, I need to join a community group. And at the first meeting of that community group, we're going to share how God has been faithful to show grace. And as our eight families gather and talk about that, we will all be strengthened to remember God's faithfulness in showing grace. There's all kinds of ways you can apply this. But it's the remembrance of what he does that strengthens us for where we're going. Let me say that again. It's the remembrance of what he's done that strengthens us for where we're going. Yes, the faithfulness of God's grace is a major theme in this passage, but so is his sovereignty in showing grace. That brings us to our second point. Remember God's sovereign grace. You look down at verse 23 is where we pick this up in the passage. Here's what it says. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So what happens here is God prophesies about these sons that are being given to Rebekah, and also about the nations that will come from them. So it's a prophecy about their hostility and their division, but also of the nations that will come from them. And God is fully sovereign over these things. And he says, here's what is going to happen. And as soon as we start to talk about the sovereignty of God over our lives and over nations, all sorts of questions start to come to the surface, right? We're asking things like, is God just reporting what's going to happen? And based on his knowledge, he sort of knows what's going to come up. Is he actually causing it? Or are we saying something else here? 
And it's important that we let the Bible interpret itself. Sometimes in your Bibles you'll see a cross-reference where this idea is talked about in this other passage or maybe this verse is quoted somewhere else. And when that happens, that's important. So the Bible tells us what the Bible means. That sounds redundant and sort of circular. Justin, what do you mean by that? Well, this section of Genesis 25 is actually quoted in the book of Romans. And so what Romans does is help us to understand what's here in Genesis 25. So it's up on the screen. In Romans 9, this section is quoted. Here's what it says, starting in verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. There's the quote at the end, but the explanation preceding it to help us understand what's going on. Now, Romans 9 just for a little bit of context, comes right after probably the most robust explanation of the gospel in the entire Bible. Romans 1 through 8 is this extended section explaining exactly what the gospel is. Romans 9 comes right after that. And it quotes from Genesis 25 to say this, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it's the same God who is sovereign in showing grace across all generations. He's saying his grace is not in response to our good works. It's based on his own decision to show grace. The reality is this, that if he was not sovereign in showing grace, we ourselves would self-destruct. Now, we see that very clearly in Genesis 25 with uh, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, Esau. Like these brothers are literally going to kill each other if God's not intervening there. But beyond Genesis 25, we see the same thing, that without God's intervention, no one is choosing to follow God. Like Romans 3, 9 and 10, no one understands, no one is righteous, no one seeks after God. That's just plainly what the passage says. So we start to dig into it and we ask questions like, well, why wouldn't God choose that person? But the better question for us to ask is, why would God choose any person? Because no one was pursuing him. No one was seeking him. I sure wasn't. That's why the hymn writer would say, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. I was going the wrong direction, and he had to go get me and bring me back. I recognize this is one of the most difficult teachings, if not the most difficult teaching in all the Bible, so what I want to do here is I want to show you a couple of passages that speak to it. I want to talk about a couple of questions. And then I want to get intensely practical on what it means that God is sovereign and showing grace, how that actually changes how you live. Because it does. And you can get stuck in these abstract discussions and arguments and theoretical this or that forever. But God is sovereign and showing grace and it's meant to transform your life. All right, let's go a couple passages here. Psalm 135, verse four. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. He chose Jacob. You saw it, Genesis 25, again, Psalm 135, Romans 9 spoke to that. But it's also made even more clear in the New Testament. So Ephesians chapter one, verses four and five. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
couldn't have been on the basis of our actions because he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Pause for a moment there. He's saying, I chose you for this aspect of becoming more like Jesus. The Christian life, we call that sanctification. That's what was said there. But then verse five, we continue. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So you get to the adoption piece there and it's saying, no, now here's actually the moment of conversion that was also predestined according to the purpose of his will. So Ephesians 1 says, or you could look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, here's what it says. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Let me just pause and say what the Bible said again there. According to his great mercy, who did the causing? He has caused us to be born again, to come to that moment of conversion, to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here it says, the future tense is guaranteed. Your glorification, being ushered into eternity, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Or what John chapter 6 would say, where John records the words of Jesus, and he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God is sovereign in showing grace. I mean, we start to look at that, and you say, well, just, I mean, the Old Testament and the New Testament and the writings of Peter and of Paul and of John, it seems like there's one God who inspired all of it. Well, there is. Understand this. The red-letter words aren't any more special than the black-letter words in your Bible. They're all inspired by God. It's not like Peter's got a, a niche on the market or Paul's got a niche on this. It, it's all God's words. But we start to dig into this, and of course, questions come to mind. Probably the biggest one saying, if God is actually sovereign over these things, then do my actions really matter? What's the point of praying if God's going to do this regardless? What's the point of evangelizing and sharing the gospel if God's going to intervene and do this thing? What's the point of striving for holiness and working towards becoming more like Jesus? And it's important in this that we understand that, that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, they roll together like train tracks. They're going side by side. There's somewhat in tension with one another. And as you think about looking down a train track, into the distance somewhere, it looks like they can't stay there together. One has to overtake the other one, is what it looks like, right? As you get to the horizon line. But anybody who's gone further down the tracks knows, the further I get, it looks like they have to run into each other, but somehow they don't. God is fully sovereign, and man is fully responsible for their actions, Suggesting that the train track thing sounds maybe kind of nice, maybe that gives a little bit of explanation, but could you actually show it to me in the Bible instead of just speculating about these things? Sure, glad you asked, thank you. Acts chapter two, we see these placed side by side. Here, this is Peter is preaching, and here's what he says. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. As God planned it, he didn't merely know it, he was delivered up. This was God's plan, and he foreknew everything that was going to happen. God is sovereign. But then right next to it, he lays the responsibility of man. He says, but you crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. You're that was wicked of you to do that. 
Acts 18 gives another example, and I'll give a little bit of backstory here, something that I think is helpful. In Acts 18, we find Paul in the city of Corinth. He's there to preach the gospel. The opposition, the persecution is about to heat up, and Paul is wondering, do I need to leave this city because I'm going to die? These people are going to kill me. Should I get out of here? What God actually says to him is, no, because I am going to show grace to people in this city Paul, I've chosen to use you to proclaim the gospel and I will save them. That God's sovereignty and showing grace actually motivates Paul towards evangelism. Here's what it says. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. He says, I have many here who are my people. And I know it looks insane to you, Paul. I know it looks impossible because they're going to try and kill you. And you see them trying to kill you. It seems like they have no interest in the gospel. But Paul, stay there. Keep preaching. I'll protect you because I've chosen I'm going to save them. And I'm going to do a work even though it seems like there's no chance to you. So stay at it. Don't give up. There's hope and I'm going to speak through you, Paul. Here's how our church statement of faith talks about these ideas and puts them together, the sovereignty and responsibility at the same time. It says, we believe that God, in eternity past, lovingly chose some to salvation. We believe this reality in no way diminishes man's culpability for sin, responsibility to repent, or the call to preach the gospel to all nations. So you hear it and you say, Justin, okay, I, I hear what you're saying, I see the passages, I get the, sort of the examples, but how exactly does this work? I, I can't fully wrap my mind around it. Well, welcome to the club. <laughs> I, I, of course I can't fully wrap my mind around this, but, but, but seriously, can I ask you this question? If you could fully wrap your mind around everything of who God is and everything of how God acts, would he really be God? If every single thing he did made complete sense to you and you could connect it all, would he actually be God or would he just be maybe a bumped up version of us? This, I think, is what the prophet Isaiah had in view in chapter 55 and verse 9, verse 10, when he said, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, declares the Lord. Or Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29, it says, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that have been revealed belong to us and to our children that we may do all the words of this law forever. In other words, he says, hey, there's some things, the secret things, they're my business. You let me do the things I'm supposed to do and worry about, and I've made it very clear what you're supposed to do. All the words that are written down, here's what I've commanded you to do. Like, look, it's a secret to me how God as Trinity can be three and one, one and three, strive to understand it, not going to fully understand it. It's a secret to me how God knows everything that's going to happen, and yet prayer still changes things. If I pray, is it not going to change? If it was already going to happen that way, is it like, you don't go down that rabbit trail forever. I don't fully understand that. God says, hey, that's a secret thing, so let me deal with that. You deal with what I've commanded you to do. You say, okay, 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 I'm hearing you, I'm trying to let it go, but you, you promised me this would be practical. 
how exactly does this get into practical Christian living? Because this feels like ivory tower theology textbook stuff. Okay, we're getting there, I promise. Here's the first thing. Recognizing God's sovereignty means recognizing that God uses human means to accomplish his will. In Romans 13:1, God says he appoints the rulers and the authorities. And how does he bring them into power? Through your voting, through the means of human action. Is he fully sovereign over it? You bet. Is the answer, therefore, don't go vote? <laughs> no, I, that would be very foolish of us. And God is sovereign over his grace being shown to people. And he accomplishes it through human means of us going out and proclaiming the gospel. Romans 10, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. His sovereignty means he's working through human means to accomplish his will. But here's the second thing. You recognize because he's sovereign, you can be incredibly bold in your witnessing, in your prayer life, and you're seeking of spiritual disciplines, because if Paul was looking at it, people trying to kill him, and God says, I'm gonna use you, and by you opening your mouth and proclaiming the gospel to an audience that is not only disinterested, but actively hostile, I'm still going to work. Then we can look out and say, man, I don't know if it's a, a friend, a relative, an associate, a neighbor, somebody that's not merely disinterested, they're actively hostile, and I could still encourage them to say, hey, have you considered what's going to happen when you die? Have you considered the claims of Jesus? Could we read the Gospel of John together? Would you be interested in that? Could I invite you to that? And it seems impossible to you. It seems like there's no chance. Maybe they've been turning you down for years or decades. But God is going to work, and it doesn't depend wholly on you. It's not your persuasiveness, it's not you getting the words right, it's your boldness that God will use. And maybe in your own life, we, we don't think about the evangelism side for a minute. Anybody ever get frustrated with their lack of growth as a Christian? Kind of feels like I'm on a treadmill sometimes, kind of working hard, going nowhere. It's not breaking through. God is sovereign that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He's promised that. And so we continue to use the means ordained by him that we gather, we open his word, we read it. We pray, we bring our pain to him. We gather with God's people to read his truth and sing his truth and pray his truth and preach his truth, trusting that even in our own sinful dark hearts, God will break through. You recognize that God is sovereign in showing grace, and it gives you boldness to walk in obedience, knowing he will act. That's the second point. Third response Moses intends for us to see in Genesis 25 is that we rely on God's relentless grace. Now, you see there that that's the, uh, the longest section of the chapter, 10 verses or so, and I, I promise I won't go, you know, proportionally longer on this, but this is the beef of the narrative, in a sense, of seeing from the very beginning, this family has had some good in it, but they got a lot they're not proud of. Can I get an amen? We just tell everyone that we are a nice, normal family. The Christmas motto, right? Like the, everybody's got this, right? So verse 23, it says that these sons represent divided nations, nations in hostility to one another, incompatible nations. Look down at verse 28 with me, if you would. Genesis 25, here's what it says. 
Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, if the dictionary had the term bad parenting, you'd have a picture of this right there. Right? Isaac loves his kid literally because of what he can do for him. Like, you bring me good things. Not good. Now, it doesn't say why Rebecca loved Jacob. Maybe it's, it's similar. Like, like, maybe Esau brought Isaac what he wanted and Jacob brought Rebecca what she wanted. We're not entirely sure. But parents, can I just pause here for a moment? Favoritism is deadly. Put it to death in your family. Rejoice in what your kids are good at, not what you want them to be good at. Rejoice in what they can do, not what they can do for you. And it ought to be a nearly constant sort of catechesis in your house that your kids know there's nothing, absolutely nothing they could ever do to make you love them more. Like it doesn't matter how many points they score in the game, what grades they get, what school they get into, what role they get in the play or the drama, what job they get, how much money they make. Son, daughter, there's nothing you could ever do to cause me to love you anymore. And at the exact same time, there's nothing you could ever do to make me love you any less. Doesn't matter what bad decisions you make. Doesn't matter what terrible path you go down. Doesn't matter what embarrassing thing comes out of your mouth at the worst time for me personally. They know there's nothing you could ever do to make me love you any less. There might be good consequences, there might be bad consequences, but my love will never be in question. Parents, your kids have to know that. You have to be relentless in telling them how much you love them because it's so easy to forget that. But these parents weren't relying on God's grace. They're, they're relying on what looks good to them. Right? This looks helpful to me right now. My selfishness comes out right here and I speak to this thing. I love this meat you made and so I show favoritism towards you. But it's not just relegated to the parents, right? The boys aren't relying on God's grace either because this pattern of their lives is, is ongoing. And what God does here in Genesis 25 is he gives one snapshot, one zoomed in picture that says, here's the story of how they lived. Let's just zoom in on this one particular dinner. Here's what their family was like. Now, that ought to make you a little scared, right? Like, gosh, I hope that doesn't happen with us. Like, this one dinner conversation is kind of how it went down in the cookhouse. Yikes. But here's what we see. Right, here's the picture, and this is sort of exemplary of how their family operated. Verse is 29 through 34. Let's go back and read it together. Genesis chapter 25, verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? So he swore to him, sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The birthright is not a, a normal term in our culture in our language. Uh, so let me, quick explanation. It's, it's three parts. Number one, there's a status of the firstborn. that You just kind of get special treatment sometimes in family decisions and considerations of things. And uh, all the firstborn kind of like acknowledge it. And everyone who's not a firstborn is bitter because of it. And you're like, yeah, that, that still kind of happens here. Like they just, 
There's something about it, right? And then the second part of it is this. There's, there's a headship that comes whenever dad dies. Like you're entrusted with the estate, making decisions, taking care of mom, whatever else goes on. And then the third part is you get a double portion of the inheritance. So that's the birthright. Status of the firstborn, headship when dad dies, double portion of the inheritance. And we see in this, this story that Esau is about as rough as they come. I mean, he's a man of the field. He kind of strikes you as a bully. He seems to me like the guy who goes like up north to like Minnesota or Green Bay to a football game and goes bare-chested with his chest painted to the football game in the freezing cold. And while he's tailgating, he's got that huge don't tread on me flag flying up above right there. He's this guy who lives in the land. He hasn't met a challenge he can't tackle on his own. This is the picture of Esau. And, and Jacob is like the complete opposite. Right? He, he's a pretty boy. He's quick-witted. He's happy to make his brother look like an imbecile at every opportunity. And there happen to be a lot of opportunities for that. And so Jacob just sliding in these sarcastic remarks is kind of the idea of what this, this family looks like. Now, Jacob is wildly successful by earthly standards, but he's regularly taking his own shortcuts to get there instead of trusting God to bring the blessing that's promised. Like, I can get this my way, and it'll be a lot faster if I do it my way. It just doesn't go well in the long run that way. And ironically, it's all four of them, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, Esau, none of them are actually relying on God's grace but rather they're seeing their own shortcuts to get what they want. And sometimes that's actually what God has promised them, what they want and what God's promised, but they're trying to do it in their own way instead of relying on his grace. Esau's living by his passions, not trusting that God will actually sustain him. You see, the literal translation of his comments there says, let me greedily swallow this stew. Let me inhale it. Some of you will know in Hebrew that when a word is repeated, that adds emphasis. So like in the holiness of God, some of those passages say, holy, holy, holy. Like, wow, God is really holy. What it says here is, let me greedily swallow some of this red stew, red stew. So you see this guy, bare-chested, painted all up. He's got the Viking hat on. He's saying, red stew, red stew, red stew. Like, give me... And then he eats it and like pounds a six-pack of Coors Light in, in no time. It's like, this guy's just living by his passions. Whatever looks good, he's just hog-wild going after it. But there's an interesting phrase there at the end of verse 34 that says this wasn't a one-off kind of activity for him. This is how he lived his life. And you can almost see in verse 34 this meter to what he says that indicates this is how Esau lived his entire life. Look back at it here. It says, he ate and drank and rose and went his way. You hear that in there? You hear it a little bit in the English. It's more exaggerated even in the Hebrew. Like, this is the pattern of this dude's life. And what's really funny about it is we, I've painted a picture of Esau, of this guy that we all kind of look at and we're like, yeah, I don't want to be an Esau. But you know what Hebrews 12 does? Hebrews 12 takes the example of Esau and connects it to us in a powerful way and says, there's a lot more Esau in you than you want to realize. Here's what it says. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. That word might be profane or immoral or ungodly. Where is Esau in you? Is sort of the question being pressed. 
because it's natural for that to come out. Where do your passions run rampant and you do foolish things that others would look at it and laugh and be like, dude, what are you doing? But you're living by your passions and so it seems to make sense at the time. And Hebrews 12 says that our sexuality is a huge part of that. We by experience know that to be true. We live by our passions and we do foolish things that we ought not. Guys, put it to death. Trust in God's grace to sustain you. Don't just go after what seems like the easy way out right now. There's other ways that we can live by our passions in a way that's not a sexual sin. Right? Your passions can rage and you can speak instead of showing restraint. You can eat and drink based on your passions instead of showing restraint. You can get angry and, and type an email instead of showing restraint. You can get frustrated and spend instead of showing restraint. Esau lives in all of us. And Jacob also lives by his passions, it's just in a different way. But he badly wants this birthright, birthright that's actually promised to him. So he takes Satan's shortcut and pursues it in his way, in his timing. He manipulates Esau and says, sell me the birthright now. He easily could have said, like, yeah, I got a whole cup, whole you know, pot of stew here, man. Like, I know you're hungry, you shouldn't be so angry and cantankerous, but whatever, here you go. Like, he easily could have done that and trusted God to bring the birthright. He says, no, 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 I want it now. I want this thing my way, my timing. And so he actually gets the birthright, but instead of enjoying it, he spends years on the run trying to save his skin. Don't you see that? Sometimes you can get what God has promised to you, but you do it in the wrong way and you don't actually get to enjoy the blessing he intends for you to have because you tried to do it in your way instead of relying on his grace. So as we've been tracking through, through Genesis here, what we're seeing is this promised line of the Messiah is coming along and all around, we're looking around to see where's the righteous line? Where's the righteous one? Where's he coming out of this family? And the point that is starting to be brought about here is this. There is no righteous line. They're all crooked. They're all wicked. They're all selfish. They all need daily repentance and turning from sin. I think for all of us, there's a deep legalistic tendency in probably every human heart to look out and assess our spirituality and say, here's where I'm doing better. Here's where my doing defines my spirituality. And we'd be far better served instead of saying my doing, my righteousness is the mark to say, how am I doing at repenting? of regularly turning, is it, am I daily repenting, coming back saying, oh, Lord, I see where I turned away from you. I confess that. I ask for your grace to strengthen me, to follow you today, to turn away from that. I can only do it by your grace. So rather than looking at my performance, I'm looking at my repenting. And you know what? The more I repent and trust in God's grace, you know what's going to happen? You're going to become more like Jesus. He will change you. The more you rely on his relentless grace that is always coming, the more you are actually changed. But if you focus on, here's what I gotta do, here's what I gotta do, here's what I gotta do, and you're not focused on my needing his grace and my reliance on his grace, you're gonna get it backwards and you're gonna end up with neither. The 
the high schoolers we had the winter Bible camp with had this uh, analogy. We were talking about this, and I, I thought it was really good, and I want to share it with you. They, they said it's a little bit like rock climbing. A little bit like rock climbing. Some people see the, the mountain or the little rock climbing wall, and they get started right away. They, they don't have the harness, they don't have the rope, they don't have the belay, they don't have all that jazz, and they just get going. You know, and you can make some quick progress that way, right? Hop right up, you get up six or eight feet, and, and some people have the, uh, the prudence to jump down after they get up eight feet. But other people keep going. And, uh, and the really good ones can make it a long way. There's actually like a whole sport devoted to this, like solo climbing. And these guys that are good at this, it's insane how high they can go. There was a guy a couple of years ago that scaled a, a mountain in Yosemite. We, we've got a picture of it here. No ropes. No buddies. Just him and the face of that 3,200-foot cliff, El Capitan. He got to the top. I really have no idea how. It seems impossible to me. But here's the thing with these solo rock climbers. For a while it goes okay, but this sport almost always ends in tragedy. Because eventually you think you can do that and you can't. And a guy falls to his death. Or an avalanche comes and wipes out a gal who's climbing up the face of this mountain. Or a mudslide. Because the, the solo rock climbing yeah, you can make some quick progress, but it doesn't ever turn out well. That's like trying to live the Christian life and grow in godliness without an active reliance on his grace. You might make some progress for a bit. It might look good for a little while. It never turns out well in the long run. Grace is the harness. It catches you when you fall. But anybody who's been rock climbing knows it's not just a harness you need to catch you when you fall. There are points when you're trying to get to the top and you actually need some tension on the rope to pull you up because I'm not going to make it on my own. Because even on my best days, I still need the harness to pull me up. And even on my very best days, I still need the grace of God to train me for righteousness, to give me the strength I need for it. So even on the good day, I'm repenting of my selfish motives. And certainly on the bad days, I need it, and I'm, I'm more aware of it then. Let me close with this. Not, not necessarily a story, but a zoomed out picture of Rebecca's life and how we see the relentless grace of God showing up in her heart. Remember what we said, she waits 20 years for this promised child. She knows it's supposed to come. Infertility is a vicious, vicious struggle. You can only imagine month in, month out, 12 months a year, 20 years, 240 months. No baby. She waits, trusting God. She takes her pain to him. And eventually, one month, miraculously, she's pregnant. Everything's supposed to get better, but the pregnancy was so rough, so intense, so terrible that she's driven into a deep depression and despair. She makes it through the nine months where the promised children finally arrive. It's supposed to finally get better. They're supposed to be the light at the end of the tunnel. And for the rest of her life, she watches them at war with each other trying to kill each other, tearing the family apart. And, and sometimes she responds well, and, and sometimes she doesn't. But what is it that her suffering over decades produces? Guys, the promised Messiah came through her offspring. Redemption would not be possible without her walking that road. 
And Satan must have thought he'd won. I can close her womb, he thought, and the, the Messiah won't come. And then I can make her so discouraged, so depressed, maybe she'll end her life and I can wipe out the line of the Messiah. And then I can use this, this hairy, wild man brother to kill Jacob and I can cut off the line of the Messiah. And at every time, the relentless grace of God triumphs. And of course, Rebecca didn't see it all at the time. Like you get zoomed in on that, you know, 100 years that she lived, she's not seeing the cosmic battle. She can't see the whole zoomed out thing. But what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 is so applicable for us is for this light and momentary affliction is achieving an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And when Paul says light and momentary, guys, like it's not, you know, a hangnail. That brother knew suffering, people trying to kill him, thought he was dead, left him for dead. He says, it's doing something. God's grace is working through the worst of days. Sometimes we get to see one one-thousandth of what he's doing. But the testimony of the scriptures gives us confidence that we can throw ourselves on grace, asking for his help, knowing he'll carry us. We're going to sing in a minute here this, this truth that I know would have been resonating in, in Rebecca's heart had she had this song. We'll sing these lyrics. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter. A fetter's like a chain, handcuffs. Let thy goodness like a fetter, a handcuff, bind my wandering heart to thee. Because I need your grace and I walk away from it. I need to be bound to it, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's me. It's all of us. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Friends, rely on his relentless grace for what you need today what you need tomorrow, and what you need for the next 50, 100 years or less that God gives you. We don't know how long we have, but his grace has brought us safe thus far, will bring us safely home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithful grace. You are sovereign to intervene and show grace, and you are relentless in pursuing us with your grace. We ask for your strength, your grace today, that we would rely on that and not our own strength. We need your help. We ask you would strengthen us by your grace to not only look back at what you've done, but look forward to what you're going to do when one day all wrongs will be made right, where these sinful bodies will fall away and will be glorified, sitting around your throne singing praises forever to the lamb who was slain. We can only see that by your grace as well. Help us to see how you are at work and respond rightly to it. We pray these things in Jesus' name.